Hey man, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You got some information, thoughts, or views that you want the world to hear? When I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other places people like to listen? Man, the big question though was how do I make money from my podcast? The answer to every one of those questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. So best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with a great sponsors too, so you can get paid to podcast. One of the benefits that I really love about doing my podcast with Anchor is the ability to get my podcast on multiple platforms with the click of a button. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast and make money doing it, go to anchor.fm backward slash start. Go to anchor.fm slash start. One more time for the people in the back. Go to anchor.fm slash start to join me in a diverse community of podcasters already using anchor that's anchor.fm slash start i can't wait to hear your podcast till next time testing testing one two three it is your boy big l in the place to be (laughs) i sound like a, a late 70s early 80s rapper. Ha, 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 ha. I'm not going to do it to y'all. Man, you've tuned into episode 18 of the Page Turners podcast. Uh, quick housekeeping, man. As I stated in the last podcast, each book is a particular season. Uh, We are currently in season one with Black Theology and Black Power by the late, great Dr. James H. Cone, uh, a foundational, important, eye-opening, prophetic even, uh, text. We are still in chapter four. We're uh, probably three-fourths of the way through this text, man. So I began to uh, decide what other texts did I want to do for season two, man. I got a couple ideas that I'm not going to share with you guys right now. <laughs> I'm going to keep that to myself for a little bit, man. Uh, yo, prayers go out to the folks in the West with the fires and the snow. I guess folks are getting out west. And here on the East Coast, where the weather does the most, we're about to have a a heat wave. Just when folks began to take their air conditioners out the windows and, you know, get their fall jackets out, (laughs) it's going to be heat index in the hundreds the next couple of days. So prayers and thoughts and concerns go out to everybody, man dealing with that but again we're with episode 18 of the page turners podcast man 
where we are battling literacy. Literacy, literacy, literacy is what we are fighting against. Racial literacy is huge, and that is people under knowing that racism exists, but not understanding how racism exists. So that's one of the main objectives of this book club is to help people get an understanding and to develop strong racial literacy skills. Episode 18 of the pod turners, the pod turners, the page turners podcast, man, your boy, big L let's dig into the text. Chapter four. This agonizing experience over God's existence makes the 20th century death of God theology seem like child's play. There's something ironic about affirming God's death in view of one's identity with a cultural structure which enslaves. With the affirmation of God's death grows out of one's identity with suffering, then it is understandable, perhaps necessary. But if it arises out of one's identity within an advancing technological secular society which ignores the reality of God and the humanity of man, then it appears to be the height of human pride. This is the most disturbing fact in relation to recent developments in American white theology. Most American white Protestants who sense an identity with the death of God movement in Protestant theology take their cue from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It was Bonhoeffer who said, honesty demands that we recognize that we live in a world as if there were no God. And this is just what we do recognize before God. God himself drives us to this realization. That's a hefty statement right there. God makes us know that we must live as men who can get along without him. The God who is with us is the God who forsakes us. Jeez. We stand continually in the presence of God who makes us live in a world without the God hypothesis. From this and other similar quotations, some theologians have concluded that Bonhoeffer inaugurated a new age, an age of no God. But what most white Protestant professors of theology overlook is that there are words of a prisoner a man who encountered the evils of Nazism and was killed in the encounter. Do whites really have the right to affirm God's death when they have actually enslaved men in God's name? It would seem that unless whites are willing to endure the pain of oppression, they cannot authentically speak of God. Relevant theology can only arise when it is unreservedly identified with the suffering of the oppressed. I think that's key, man. That's a real important statement right there. We notice, and many will agree and attest, that current Christianity in the current climate of the world today, 2018, many will say that is no longer relevant. And it's not relevant not only because it's difficult to apply to current life situations, but because of the, the many forms of the division within the body. So fighting for relevancy is a huge battle in many, many churches today. And that's why you see a lot of these uh, a lot of these gimmicks and things that takes place. A lot of these churches are 
are doing to try to attract and bring people in. Uh, trying to be relevant, man. Trying to stay relevant. I dig it, but it doesn't work. And the text reads, it was the black preacher's unqualified identification with the black slave which created his doubts about God's existence. Similarly, it is understandable when many black power people shun the religion of Christianity and view God as meaningless in the black revolution. It may even be necessary in light of white prostitution of the faith. But the black preacher during slavery did not think it necessary. They were sure that God was alive and that he was working in history against the evils of slavery. It was this assurance of which pain spoke. But then there came into my mind those solemn words, with God one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Trust in him and he will bring slavery and all his outrages to an end. These words from the spirit world acted on my troubled soul like water on a burning fire and my aching heart was soothed and relieved from its burden of woes. This piece of which pain spoke is not an easy piece. It is a restless piece. It is a piece that makes him fight against human slavery, despite the odds. In a speech delivered June 1839 at the Frankenton Synod, he said, I am opposed to slavery, not because it enslaves a black man, because it enslaves man. And were all the slaveholders in this land men of color and the slaves white men, I'd be as thorough and uncompromising an abolitionist as I am now. For whatever and whenever I see a being in the form of a man enslaved by his fellow man without respect to his complexion, I shall lift my voice to plead his case against all the claims of his proud oppressor. And I shall do it not merely from the sympathy which man feels towards suffering man, but because God, the living God, whom I dare not disobey, has commanded me to open my mouth for the dumb and to plead the case of the oppressed. If your white allies, if your white Christian allies ain't making statements like that, oh. yeah. And the text reads, I am not aware, I am not unaware that many slaves accepted their condition as slaves because of fear of white power. We may even assume that some black ministers preached that Christianity was unrelated to earthly freedom. We have already observed that most of the spirituals are not protest songs, but in need of making a psychological adjustment to the existence of serfdom. For this reason, white slave masters believe that Christianity made the slave a better slave. In the South, there were few independent black churches. Most slaves worshiped with their masters or in their own churches, closely supervised by reliable white persons. Most writers prefer to church among the slaves as a visible institution. <laughs> and the text reads, it is important to note that white masters urge slaves to worship with them and usually prohibited independent black churches. The reason is clear. The black northern independence carried the message of freedom and equality to the southern black slave, causing alarm among the white masters. 
The religious congregation of the towns and the fellowships in the fields were the home base for Negro liberators, who not only preached freedom, but provoked insurrection. After the Nat Turner revolt, whites began to set up stricter laws to govern the behavior of the slaves. Whites realized that the black man could not be trusted to remain obedient, subservient to the will of the master. If the former was permitted to hear the gospel of black independence or black slaves, inspired the spirit of freedom. Therefore, in order to ensure that the master's dominance over the slave would not be preempted by a higher will, the master prevented all instruction in religious except by authorized white persons. <laughs> the reason is clear, man, that white folks push for white presence during black church services. But doesn't this kind of fly in the face of those who constantly are pushing the, the, the thought process that black Christians during slavery were just willing, open vessels to accept all that the white man was accepting? Because that's, that's the picture that is often painted in this, this hypercritical uh, assessment of black Christians doing slavery is that we were just fools. We were just idiots. We were weak, docile. Now that's not to say that the effects of white Christianity, those effects did not take place in some black Christians. But as history also records clearly, man, that that wasn't everybody, that many of us, if not most of us, took the gospel that they heard and actually used it, insurrections, revolts, rebellion, as a way of uh, uh, making their plantation life better. <laughs> but this idea that black Christians which is weak and docile and, and punks is, is foreign to the historical data. And the text reads, in an effort to dissipate the slave's passionate desire for freedom, white missionaries sought to interpret the meaning of Christianity in the light of a futuristic eschatology, trying to convince the slave that the Christian gospel was concerned with the pietistic moralities in this life as a means of gaining eternal life upon death. Man, if that doesn't sound like the doggone prosperity gospel, does not sound like the prosperity gospel to y'all? Let me read it again. Trying to convince the slave that the Christian gospel was concerned with the pietistic moralities in this life as a means of gaining eternal life upon death. But you ever notice that the, the, the prosperity gospel is, is trash? Okay, let me let me just state that out there. The prosperity gospel is one of the most dangerous, deceptive gospels, false gospels out there. I think that's an easy thing to realize and to state. But what is more surprising to me is the fact that we never really unpack the prosperity gospel. 
meaning that we do a whole lot of talking about the evils of the prosperity gospel. And there's been some people who even done some, some historical research on how the prosperity gospel has started. But do we ever talk about why the prosperity gospel exists? I don't think the prosperity gospel is ever going anywhere, like many, if not most, false doctrines. But my thought process on why prosperity gospel is not going anywhere is because poverty still exists. As long as there's poverty, there'll be a prosperity gospel. As long as there's a need for prosperity, there will always be a prosperity gospel. As long as there's a desire for prosperity, there'll always be a prosperity gospel. But when we read the text right now in this text, Dr. James Cole wrote this text in 1969. He clearly points out how the seeds of the prosperity gospel is directly correlated and attached to the slave masters. In order to keep the passionate desire for freedom of the slaves down, White missionaries, white slave masters, taught a gospel which was concerned with a piousic, with piousic moralities in this life as a means of gaining eternal life upon death. Meaning, do the right thing now. Follow what the master is saying. Listen to the, the master. Follow all the master's laws, etc., etc. Do the right thing now in order for you to gain entrance into heaven. Man, if that's not the prosperity gospel, I don't know what it is. That pie in the sky teaching didn't originate with black folk. That, that wasn't, that's not us. That's what the white slave masters gave us. That's what the white slave masters taught. As long as there is a need for pro for prosperity, there'll be a prosperity gospel. Okay? And the text reads, Thus Christianity was supposed to be concerned with the other world. What Nietzsche says, called the illusion of worlds behind the scenes. But black churches refused to accept an interpretation of Christianity, which was unrelated to social change. They knew that though Christianity is eschatology, eschatological, excuse me, it must be related to the suffering of the black man now. Though the black preacher looked to the future and spoke of it in heavenly terms, it was because of his vision into the future that he could never reconcile himself to the present evil slavery. To look toward the future is to grasp the truth of God, and to grasp the truth of God is to become intolerant of untruth. <laughs> the white missionaries sought to interpret hope in a way that made it unrelated to the present. They taught the slave that to hope means to look to heaven for reward for being obedient to the masters on earth. It meant accepting this present deplorable lot as a slave. With this view, Christian hope not only cheats the slave of the meaning of the present, it cheats God and the present reality of God and his involvement in the world on behalf of man. 
as long as hope does not change the thought and action of men in the present, it is meaningless. It would seem that black preachers before the Civil War were wiser than they have been pictured. They emphasize in the word indeed the very point which Maltzman's central thesis. On the one hand, the concept of hope is central in the preaching of the black ministers. They taught their people to look to the future, to visualize a new day, and the spirituals bear testimony to their concern for the future. On the other hand, their concern for the future did not relieve them of their responsibility for the present. Instead, it enhanced it. Through the hope which arises in Jesus, the present became intolerable. They could no longer reconcile slavery and Christianity. They heard the promise, and the promise was incongruous with the reality around them as they groped. In hope towards the promised new future, the result was not the religious sanctification of the present, but a breakaway from the present towards the future. <laughs> Benjamin Mays and Joseph Washington have shown that the pre-Civil War black preacher, Christianity, was intricately related to social justice in his world. Washington called this concern folk religion and placed it outside the mainstream of Christian tradition. But the heretics were not the slave preachers, but the white missionaries who sought to use Christianity as an instrument for enslavement. Like the early Christians who saw the difference between law, Judaism, and gospel, Christ, the black slave preachers saw that slavery and Christianity were as different as white and black. This recognition made the early black churches the center of protest against the system of slavery. It is true, as Washington suggested, that the slave preachers were virtually theologically illiterate. And even to this day, few blacks have made any substantial contribution to white theology. Now, let me say that one more time, because I think that's crucial. To this day, few blacks have made any substantial contribution to white theology. But literacy was never a precondition to religious insight. <laughs> As Horton said, Jesus did not say, blessed are the brilliant, but blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It was rather white Christianity in America that was born in heresy. It's very coming to be an attempt to reconcile the impossible slavery in Christianity. And the existence of the black church is a visible reminder of its apostasy. The black church is the only church in America which remained recognizably Christian during the pre-Civil War days. Its stand on freedom and equality through word and action is true to the spirit of Christ. We got to get this down, man. We got to get this down. I'm going to read a couple more pages in this chapter, man. Okay. And the text reads, the Southern invisible, invisible institutions among blacks became visible in a host of new black churches, united in spirit to the already existing black independence. The founding of a church was one of the ways blacks expressed their new freedom. According to Mays and Nicholson, the freedom which the Negro felt in this period is best revealed by the fact that of the 333 rural and urban churches of the study which originated then 231, or 69%, came into existence through the initiative of individuals and groups. 
it is important to point out that the new organizations were sometimes directly related to the expulsions from white churches. Here it becomes clear that white masters accepted black slaves in their churches as a means of keeping the black man regulated as a slave. There was no mutual relationship between equals. Therefore, when whites saw that it was no longer economically advantageous to worship with blacks, they put blacks out of their church as a matter of course. Some whites were gentle in the process, giving blacks a plot of ground or occasionally a building for a place of worship. That was a small price to pay for 250 years of slavery. Now, here, here's let's, let's go back a little bit. Here it becomes clear that white masters accepted black slaves in their churches as a means of keeping the black man regulated as a slave. I think that takes place in many ways today where white churches will have black people involved in their denominations and things as a way of keeping black people not focus on their specific, clearly exclusive issues. I think we see it very, very clearly, man, in many, many churches. But here's another part right here. Therefore, when whites saw that it was no longer economically advantageous to worship with blacks, they put blacks out of the churches. That's one of the things that I noticed, man, about the Christian hip-hop community. The Christian hip-hop community is incredibly, was open, welcomed in many predominantly white churches. For one, they saw their white children and white congregants gravitating towards hip-hop, the hip-hop culture, and they wanted to not have them aligned with certain quote-unquote negative forms of hip-hop. So they allowed Christian hip hop to flourish, or almost say flourish, to participate within the Christian in their Christian churches. But when these churches, when these Christian hip hop folk began to speak up and out against racial issues, you'll notice that the, these white churches turned against these predominantly black Christian hip-hop artists. When it's not economically friendly or doesn't serve the purpose of these predominantly white churches, they removed these black Christian hip-hoppers. So now when you have black Christian hip-hop artists who are beginning to speak out about the injustice that their communities are facing, peep how they are being talked to, how they're being viewed. Peep how Lecrae was treated for the longest time. And in many instances still, Thistle is going through the same Thistle is going through the same thing currently. He's beginning to speak out and he took crazy, great, awesome stances against the things that have been taking place in his hometown, St. Louis. For the longest time, he was been active in his community in a myriad of ways. Uh, but now we see how he is beginning to speak out even louder about things and is being viewed in such a manner of which it has really, really 
been crazy how people have beginning to say to the classic line, just preach the gospel. Just just preach the gospel. Just just preach the gospel. And it seems to go back to that same slave master type of mentality that if we are not serving the purpose, if we are not doing things in such a manner that is appeasing to the white slave masters or the white, predominantly white churches or white evangelicalism, you see how they exclude us from the picture. You peep it. You see it, man. And I don't know how you guys, how folks are reconciling this. I love, I'm always curious to see how y'all are wrestling with the current state of Christianity as far as it goes with dealing with white supremacy. Constantly trying to see that, man. It's mind-blowing to see. Incredibly, incredibly interesting, man. How are you wrestling with it? How are you handling and dealing with it? I know some of my black brother men tend to brethren, meaning encapsulating black Christian men and women, not excluding the ladies, of course, who have been usually influential and just their role in the faith has been so drastically uh, understated. But I've seen the phase of black Christians trying to persuade white Christians to participate in their fight against white supremacy. I've seen black Christians try to shame white Christians into doing it by using scriptures. Hey, this is what scripture says. You're supposed to be doing this. I've seen us beg white evangelicals. And I'll say this to no avail. To no avail. How are y'all handling this stuff, man? Are you taking care of yourself? Are you making sure that you're not getting yourself wrapped up so deeply and overwhelmed with what's taking place that you're in a constant state of frustration and anger? Self-care is important, man. This has been episode 18 of the Page Turns Podcast. With your boy Big L. I thank you guys for tuning in and listening. As always, I ask for you to be safe, be encouraged. Be safe, be encouraged. Be safe, be encouraged. Till next time, family.